Today, we will continue our series on Connected, Connecting with God and Others. Thank you for joining us. So this is week seven in our series, uh, Connected, being connected to God and connected with others. Our kind of mission statement here is connecting your story with Christ and others, and you will hear us say repeatedly that your, your story matters. Your story matters. Uh, I, I, I called my mom yesterday. Uh, yesterday evening, probably at around 6.30, and I said, hey, this is a hard, this has been a hard afternoon for me right here. And she goes, what's going on? And I said, this, this is the first day I've been hit with, with this today, is that normally for me, this time of year, when you've got Georgia playing football, and you've got the Braves playing playoff baseball, me and my dad, man, we would get on the phone. Hey, you watching the game, son? And me and him would talk. And yesterday I was sitting there like watching this and flipping channels. And I'm like, oh, I can't talk to my dad today. That was the first for me yesterday on that one. And there's a lot of firsts that we go through, right? And you guys know as well as anyone that has been here for a period of time that like athletics and sports and all that kind of stuff matter. I, I, I enjoy that. Uh, that, that. That being said, as I start today... One of my favorite uh, coaches and influencers over the years is a guy by the name of John Wooden. If you know anything about Coach Wooden, Coach Wooden was, uh, he won 10 D1 National Basketball Championships at UCLA. That'll, that'll never be done again. But Coach Wooden was a very uh, a solid man in his faith and very outspoken about his faith. And he wrote a book called The Pyramid of Success, and I don't even care whether you're in athletics or whether you're in leadership of people or whatever. I would encourage you, The Pyramid of Success by John Wooden, and he lays out just basic principles of leading people. I, I would encourage you uh, to get that and read it. But they asked Coach Wooden once, they said, uh, what does it really take and what are the key ingredients of uh, making a winning team? And he made these three observations. I want you to think about this. He said, you got to get your players in the right condition. Like that, that, that's number one. Number two, you've got to teach them the fundamentals of the game. And he always viewed himself as a teacher and not really as a coach. He taught the fundamentals of the game. And then he said, the third thing you've got to do is you've got to be able to teach them to play together as a team. Like no one individual is above the team that we're trying to, uh, to build here. And I, and I started pondering those three principles and started thinking about that's key. And even when it comes to kind of the vision of who we are at the Cross Loganville, if a person asked me, like, what, what is the vision? What are you guys really trying to accomplish? I would say, Coach Wooden was right on. He takes these principles from Scripture. But number one, we desire to see people get right with God. We would call that salvation and sanctification. So, so the key in life is getting right with God. Two, we would say, well, we're here to teach the fundamentals of the faith. We would call that discipleship or even right doctrine. And then we would say, we really want to see people work together and, and, and gel together as a team, which is the body of Christ, so that we're in partnership and deeper fellowship with each other, so, so that we're all going in the same direction. If you take those three things, that, that's what we want to see. Whether you're parenting, whether you're pastoring, whether you're coaching, what, what are you trying to do? We're, we're, 
we're trying to get people in right shape with God. Because if a person gets right with God, and then they start to build on the foundation and the fundamentals of the faith, and then they start to connect with other people, man, it's amazing what can happen. Uh, John Ortberg, one of my favorite writers, said this. He said, the decision to grow always involves a choice between risk and comfort. This means that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must renounce comfort as the ultimate value of your life. Again, last week I said, if a person asked me, how do you spell life? I would say R-I-S-K. Because life involves so many different risks. And if we're ever going to be the people that God wants us to be, we have to get to a place where we renounce comfort and we risk it all for Jesus. Now, that being said, here's something that's very important to me as lead pastor uh, of the church here. And I think it's important for you to understand. The goal of our church here at the Cross Loganville is not numerical growth. That's not our goal. The goal here is health and maturity. I did not say that numerical growth didn't matter. I just said it's not the the thing we're shooting at. Here's what we know. If health and maturity is taking place, and that is what people are locking into in regards to becoming disciples of Jesus, if that's happening and people are being built up, then God will build his church. But because we live in a culture where there's so much spiritual infancy and so many people around us, as we look, we go, hey, you've been in church for a long time, right? The Bible Belt, when you look at it at large, the Southern culture, here's what you will see oftentimes in conversation. People attend church occasionally. They pray occasionally, especially when there's like a heightened need going on. They, they read their Bible maybe a few times a week. They even wear a cross around their neck, and they'll tell people, I'm a follower of Jesus. But the way they live their life and the way they conduct themselves indicates something totally different. And, and, and the culture in which we live, there's been a lot of people that have had church, small c, church experience, but have never had a Christ encounter. And, and, and that, is, that is so essential because when Jesus said, hey, hey, I want you to be my disciple, go and make disciples, here's the definition. A disciple is being all I can be and the best I can be for the glory of God, which contradicts Sunday morning attendance or Sunday morning Christianity. But that's the culture in which we find ourselves living. So if I'm going to really be a follower of Jesus Christ, that implies I am a student of everything that Jesus teaches, and I am now an apprentice of Christ and him only. Now, premise, premise statement. Write it down, please. We exist for the glory of God, nothing else. Our purpose for being on the planet is for the glory of God. So when you contemplate 
the glory of God. If we exist for the glory of God, then what is the glory of God? We would say the glory, the glory of God is God's greatness, is his magnificence, it's his power, it is his beauty, it is the attributes of God. Why do you exist? For the glory of God. Now, we are created in the image of God, which means that when God placed us on the planet, created in the image of God, God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're triune, spirit, soul, and body. We were created to be glory-oriented. Every one of us are created in the image of God and we're glory-oriented, which means that we have been created to admire greatness, beauty, the magnificence of God. That's why we were created, being made in the image of God to reflect God. So, so even like just sitting there this morning and just pausing in worship and, and listening to like Teresa or listening to Julia or Nick, we go, oh, I am moved by that music. Yes. Why? Because something inside of us desires to admire something bigger than ourselves. The song exists and the singer exists for one reason, to point us to God. Not so that we become fascinated with a voice or a talent, Every preacher, teacher, messenger exists for one purpose, to point us to God. So we're created in the image of God, and because of that, this God orientation, we have this desire to worship, to admire, to gravitate toward beauty. God wired us this way, but here's a major problem. Here's a major problem. Uh, sin turned us into glory thieves. Sin turned every one of us into glory thieves. We were born to worship. And so we do just the wrong things. We, we were born to worship. We were born to magnify. We just worship the wrong things. Man's original design was to live in this perfect world, in this perfect relationship with God, worshiping God, exalting God, praising God, glorifying God. But sin disrupted and corrupted God's design. And as a result, we now live with this desire for self. Every person you meet, every person that is born into the world is born spiritually dead. Even though they're created in the image of God and are glory-oriented, Sin hijacked all of us, and we have this desire for self to be on the throne. We want to be great. We want to have power. We want to be admired. We want to be elevated. And that's where people live. So instead of living for the glory of God, we live for the glory of self. And our focus got incredibly hijacked. And so instead of our focus staying on God and being upward, Sin twisted it so that it became inward and outward. So we're created, and we exist for the glory of God, to worship God. But sin has messed us all up, and we turn this stuff inward, and, and we turn it outward. We, we either 
are, are, are looking for people just to, to approve us and accept us or acknowledge us or to notice us, or, or we end up giving it to other people. So we're glory thieves. Again, it hijacked so much. But, but God, in, in his greatness and his kindness, when you start to, to ponder the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, God placed us in a world that is packed full of his glory. His glory is all around us. So we look at trees and we go, wow, that, that, that's incredible. It, it's a sign of a greater being. Uh, we look at flowers and we can get fascinated with the beauty or the mountains or the oceans. Or, and all of a sudden we go, wow, look, look at this. And if we're not careful, we get fascinated with that and we never look beyond that. God's given us kids and grandkids and the wife of our youth. To point us to him. All of these things were designed and created to point us to God. They're nothing but signs. It's just, it's just a sign saying, there's a God. There's a God that made this. That's a sign saying, worship God, exalt God. Think about it. For Drew and Teresa, they're going to head out today and they're going to go down to the panhandle. But let's say you guys were heading down to Destin and you're so fired up about going to Destin and all of a sudden you jump off of I-10 and you jump on whatever road and you're heading south and you're about 30 miles out from this resort and from this place you're going to stay. And all of a sudden you see a sign on the side of the road and there's a picture of the place and there's a, place, a picture with a name on it and you go, hit the brakes. And all of a sudden, you skid off the road, and you get out of the car, unpack the car, kids! And all of a sudden, you say, we're just going to vacation under this sign. You would go, that, that's insane. That sign is not there so that you would vacation underneath it. That sign only exists to point you to where you're going. And so all of creation is nothing but a sign saying, Worship God, glorify God, exalt God. This is just a sign. And, and oftentimes, if we're not careful, we get lost in signs. And it's so easy, I think, for people even to attend a concert or to attend a worship service or whatever, and we come in and we go, I just love to hear her sing. She's a sign to point you to the Savior, that's nothing but an indicator that something greater exists. But sin turned us into glory thieves. And the sad thing is, even in our culture, self-centered Christianity is being promoted. It's just being promoted, and it's crazy because... If you ask most people, even that attend church and wear the cross and occasionally pray and read the Bible, if you ask them, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why was Jesus raised from the dead? The majority of people will say, he died for me. And how you answer that question is going to be so crucial. 
did he die really for you or did he really die for the glory of God? Because so many people will say, well, Jesus makes me a better person and Jesus gives my life meaning and purpose and Jesus set me free from my sin and I get to go to heaven when I die and I will miss hell now because of Jesus is here for me. He takes care of me. He even said, you ask and I'll give it to you. And people misquote Jesus all the time. And a self-centered Christianity is going to hijack us in our walk with God. It doesn't work. Jesus said in John 17, 4, Father, I have glorified you by accomplishing the work that you sent me to do. So why do we exist? We exist for the glory of God. And so a true disciple of Jesus loves, worships, follows, obeys, submits, and yields in devotion to Jesus and his teaching. A true disciple will say this, Jesus is my authority. I follow Jesus only. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus asks the disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, and others say you're a prophet that has been raised from the dead. Great, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how we answer that question is so essential and foundational and crucial. Who do you say that Jesus is? Why did Jesus come? What's the purpose of the gospel narrative? Who do you say that I am? Your Lord, your master, your authority, your ruler, your, you call the shots. Jesus then looked at the disciples and said, I, I would highlight this, underscore this, circle this, because this is not one of your rabbit foot verses that people gravitate toward, like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, or Philippians 4.19, my God's going to meet all my needs. This is, I would highlight this one where Jesus says, I must suffer many, many, many terrible things. I will be rejected. I will suffer. I will be rejected. I will be killed. But three days later, I will arise. So here, here, here to me is the rub and the tension. Will you embrace the Christ that promises a life of suffering and rejection? Am I willing to embrace the Jesus of, Bi of the Bible? Michael, am I willing to embrace the Christ that says, if you come after me, rejection, betrayal, suffering, potentially even being martyred for your faith is going to be the outcome. Well, I embrace that Jesus. And then you really do have to ponder this. How many churches today would have Jesus even as a guest speaker? Because the message of my Messiah and Lord contradicts the feel-good it's all about you, message that we're hearing proclaimed in our culture at large. Hey, come and follow me. 
come, come and follow me. And I would say, how is his message of being a devoted disciple received today? And, and I have to struggle through this because of the cost of discipleship. But I have to ask the question, does the teachings of Jesus frighten me? Do they scare me? Do they disrupt me? Do they challenge me to adjust my own personal life? Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, if anyone, this is the teaching of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, he must, must, must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily and then he must follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what does it profit a man if he should gain the entire world, yet lose and forfeit his soul? Hey, hey you're going to follow me? You're going to deny yourself. You're going you're to follow me? You're going to take up your cross daily. You're going to follow me? You've got to be willing to die. You've got to be willing to die. And the imagery that Jesus uses here is that of a condemned criminal that was forced to carry one bar, if you will, of his cross to his place of execution. And so after being beaten and, and, and tortured, he would have to carry this one cross beam, and he was on a one-way journey. So when he picks up this bar, this beam, and he's going to a place of execution and crucifixion, he was on his way on a one-way journey to be executed. And, and, and he was not coming back, and he was not looking back, and he was not going back. He, he was going one way and one way only. And the emphasis that Jesus is making here is that you've got to be willing to repent and say, I'm going one way only, and the one way only that I'm going, God, is your way only. You've got to take up your cross and taking up your cross represents anything in your life that would hinder you and keep you from becoming a devoted disciple and really experiencing growth and maturity to the max. That, that's what Jesus taught. Hey, is there anything in your life that's hindering or limiting you in following me? You see the teaching according to Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus declared, give me all. Give me all. I don't want your time, I don't want your money, and I don't want your work. I want all of you. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He goes, Jesus said, I have not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. Come, follow me. Follow is an absolute deep, passionate resolve to say, I just want to please the Lord. If we're going to be connected to God and connected to others, the only way we can get there is to truly be connected to the Jesus of the Bible and not this feel-good stuff around us. This is the teaching of Jesus, which implies, hey, I want you to learn to hear my voice. I want you to know my voice. I want you to align yourself in such a way, Jason, that when, when I speak, you know it's me because you hang out with me and you're walking in my dust and you're a student, you're an apprentice, you stay with me and 
You're going to obey me. And we do have to ask the question, am I quick to obey Jesus? Am I quick to walk in obedience even when I'm battling fear and even when I'm unsure and even when I'm scared, am I willing still to take that step and do it? You're going to follow me? You're going to do it? Yes. A.W. Tozer, a great mind and theological voice, said this, the true follower of Jesus Christ will not ask, if I embrace this truth, what will it cost me? Rather, he will say, this is truth. God, help me to walk in it no matter what may come my way. It's not, if I embrace this, what, what, what's this going to do to me? Rather, it's saying, this is truth. God, give me the, the courage to walk in truth no matter what the consequences are. Is it hard? Yes. Why? Because we love me. I was praying for my, my son Benji this morning. And Benji is uh, speaking two services down in Monroe this, this morning. And uh, we were talking on Friday night. He was introducing me to one of the guys that's assisting him with the NG3 stuff in Walton County. And this guy is reluctant a little bit to, to go to the next level. But he's left some of his comfort zone, and he's starting to, like, serve, and he's taking some risk. And I said, Benji's been bragging on you. I said, Benji, tell him about the first time I asked you if you wanted to share your testimony. Not going to do it. Not going to do it? No. I, I got to pray about that one. I'm not going to do it. And then weeks later, you come back and go, What? All right, I'm willing to do it, but how am I going to do it? We'll work with you. So the first time he ever stood on a platform was to share his testimony, and he used his tattoos that, to tell a narrative. Now we don't have enough time in the day for him to use his tattoos because of how much more ink the boy's got. And then time rocks on. Time rocks on. And I said, you need to share again. You've got to overcome the mind monsters, and you'll only get over that by sharing. And so about a year later, he speaks again. And I was like, you remember that? Yes, I do. And then you call me two months later and go, hey, when can I speak again? He's not standing on that platform speaking today because he decided to speak today. It was all these other decisions you have to make to count the cost and to face your mind monsters and to face your fears and to get out of your comfort zone to be where you're at today. The only way God uses us is those baby steps that we take way back. Jesus said, verse 24, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever's willing to lose his life for me will save it. He goes, you want to try to save your life, which means you're trying to protect your life and preserve your life and promote your life, you're going to lose it. You, you realize everything you really do for you and everything you try to stockpile for you that I'm not a part of, you're going to lose that. But then he says, whoever is willing to lose his life for me, which means whoever is willing to abandon their own agenda for me and my agenda is where you start to find life. 
Whoever, I like what Mother Teresa said. She said, you must give God permission to use you without consulting you. There's a price to pay to follow Jesus, right? There's a cost of discipleship. But you've got to ask the question, who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And am I really the Christ, the anointed one, the one with full authority? Am I the one that is to call the shots every day in your life? And you do, you, you, we, we all have to do this where you stop and go, all right, what things in my life is God calling me to surrender, to release, so that I can follow in his steps? And there's things that can cloud our minds and corrupt the way we do things. And God goes, I, I need that. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, any of you, listen to this statement, this is just Jesus talking. That's the reason I said it would, it would be interesting to see how many churches would have Jesus as their guest speaker today. But Jesus said, any of you who does not give up everything he has, any of you, every one of you out there who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And I do believe that the Greek word there for everything means everything. When you study it, the emphasis is there's only room for one master in your life. There's only room for one master in your life. Jim Elliott, that recognized missionary to the Aka Indians, who lost his life with his buddy Nate Saint and others when they were attacked, Jim Elliott made this statement. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're not a fool to give what you can't keep. What can I not keep? I can't keep my life. It doesn't belong to me. The very breath in my body is a gift from God. What did I gain? I gained eternal hope, salvation, forgiveness, and redemption. I can't lose it. You're never a fool to give what you can't keep anyway to gain what you'll never be able to lose when it's in the right hands. Back to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. You got to ask the question with every one of these three uh, statements here, what was that dude's heart? Because Jesus looks at him and says, you realize foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? You're, you're going to follow me. Verse 59, Jesus said to another, follow me. He said, permit me first to go back and bury my father. Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, I want you to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You've got to stop and go, what was that guy's heart? What was his heart? He said to another, follow me. Let me go back and bury. Let me, uh, he says to another guy, verse 61, I'll follow you, Lord. He goes, but let me go back home and tell everybody goodbye. 
Here, here would be the three words I would write down as I pondered this. When people are speaking into this space, oftentimes this is the dialogue I've had with people as well. What keeps you from repenting? When are you going to really surrender to the Lordship of Christ? And the, the three words I highlighted as I pondered this was if, later, and when. It's, it's almost like the first guy saying, I'll follow you if, but I want to know what the comforts are. That's the reason Jesus always spoke to the motive of the heart. When Jesus said, hey, hey, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to hang with me if I can promise you enough comfort and ease. But I've already said I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die. It goes back to why did Jesus come, why did Jesus die, why was he resurrected? And I believe he's speaking to the space right here, to the person that says, well, if I come to Christ, what's in it for me? And the reason the name it and claim it theology that has kind of taken root system in our culture is so dangerous and perverted, we call it name it and claim it, the blab it, grab it, believe it, receive it, all that kind of stuff was affiliated. The reason that stuff is so dangerous is it puts you at the pinnacle instead of Christ. Hey, all you got to do is sow this seed faith of $10 and God's going to give you 100 So Jesus is now reduced down to nothing more than a cosmic banker with Santa's heart that's here just to make sure you get what you want. That's not the gospel. I'll follow you if. And Jesus is basically, again, looking at this guy saying, you've got to abandon earthly comfort if you're going to be my disciple. The next guy was basically saying, I'm going to follow you, but later. i got to go back and bury because I get a third of that inheritance. And right now, hanging out with you is a conflict for me, but I'm going to hook up with you later. And Jesus never neglected a family and social and religious obligation. But again, the emphasis here is on loyalty to Christ, and he knew the motive of the heart, and he knows the motive of my heart. And when he talks about the dead here, he's talking about those that are spiritually dead. But I played that game right there for a while later. Let me be a teenager. Let me have fun. Let me go out there and sow some of my own seed to the flesh. Uh, I, let me go on to, to go to college. Uh, now I, I'm, I'm starting to have a little bit more secular, worldly, hedonistic, fleshly fun. I'm going to follow you later probably, but not now. Even when Jesus said, hey, today your soul is going to be required to you, of you, how do you even know that you've got a later? But I think a lot of times people roll the dice and go, man, I want to see what the world has to offer. Man, there's too much fun going on out there right now. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you fall into these traps of party crazy, and you end up becoming addicted to all these things, and you're like, Later never happens. I remember that conversation with my buddy John Smoltz, and Smoltz, he was like, I tell you, I think I'm gonna, I, I'll do it once I'm, I'm through playing baseball. Uh, I, think, I think I'll do it once my career's over. May, maybe when I get around 45 is when I'll do it. And my buddy Walt Wiley looked at him, and Walt says, so, so what if you only live 41 years, then what? Are you going to do it later? 
but w- w- what about if you only get 41 and not 45 and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna surrender at 45, but you only get 41? Then what? And it rocked his world. He goes, man, we're not promised anymore, are we? And I said, no, because everything that Jesus taught was, follow me now. Follow me now. The last guy's basically saying, hey, I'm going to follow you when it's a little more convenient for me. I want to go back and tell the family goodbye. I need to tie a few things together before I get on this Jesus wagon. I need to... Tell some people farewell, because again, remember when he says, follow me, it's the imagery of a criminal carrying his crossbar to the place of execution, and he couldn't turn back, and he couldn't look back, and he couldn't go back, and Jesus is like, this convenient thing ain't going to work. Your duty to whatever has got to be placed on the altar of devotion to me. Hey, I'm going to really get right with God, but I've got to get this business going, and I want to get my career going, and I've got a few dreams I want to live out, and I'm going to do it when. You know, when I was, had just finished my freshman year in college, this uh, guy, Bo Barron, back home, Bo Blonde, blue eyes, Bo was probably 5'11", about 215, Bo did bodybuilding. I mean, Bo was a good-looking guy. Bo was the type of dude that could be on the cover of fitness magazines and stuff. And I'll never forget when Bo and the girl he was with that night had this accident on 85 and hit that concrete wall. And Bo was built and Bo lifted and Bo was strong. But when that steering wheel caved in his chest and he died of internal bleeding, that, that was a rock, uh, that, that, that was a, a thing that rocked my world. I'm like, man, I hung out with this dude. We, we did life together. We went to school together. We ran together. And, and, and it was like, oh, my God, this, this is heartbreaking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, do it a little bit later on. I'm gonna do, uh, and, and the Lord started convicting me, and I did not surrender at that time. Man, I was under so much conviction. And, and I had a job during the summer cutting grass at the cemetery. But that's what I did, right? So I'd go to the cemetery. Every day at 12 o'clock, Bo's dad would drive up. He would stop on the curb. He would get out, and he would walk over, and for 20 to 30 minutes, he would stand over Bo's grave. And I remember just seeing that every day and remember tears coming down my eyes. And I was like, man, it's so sad. It's so sad. But when we postpone, really, we don't know how many days we're going to get. And that's not a fear-based thing. That's just a reality of what I went through. But I remember God used that to rock my world. How do you know how many more days you're going to get? How, how, do, how do you know how much longer you're going to be here? I memorized verse 62 Luke 9, 62, I memorized this verse right shortly after I got saved. And there's a reason why I did. But Jesus makes this statement. He said, no man, after putting his hands to the plow and looking back, no man who's willing to look back is fit for the kingdom of God. Tim, are you willing to lock your hands on the plow and walk with me 
and serve me and trust me and obey me. I memorized that verse probably as a 22, 23-year-old dude after I got saved. And it was like, you got to burn the ships. You, you, you've got to sever all that of your past, Tim. Now come follow me. Did I ever in a million years imagine that I would ever stand in front of even a group of five and do a teaching? No. Did I ever imagine that I would stand in front of thousands at times and ever speak? No. All I knew was that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I was going to have to deny myself. I was going to have to take up my cross daily. And I was going to have to be willing to die for the gospel. And he was like, put your hands to the plow and walk with me one day at a time, which implies reckless abandonment, which implies total surrender, which implies total commitment. I don't know if I shared this with you guys, but we exist for the glory of God. Not really sure you heard that when I first talked to you on the front side, but I want you to hear it. Your purpose for being on the planet is to worship and glorify God, is to admire and wallow in the greatness and the beauty and the magnificence of your God. Master Jesus taught that true discipleship requires instant action. Follow me now. Jesus constantly gave teachings that would expose the true motive in our heart. That's the reason when we get into the Word, and if we're willing to get into it day after day after day, God exposes stuff, reveals stuff, and continually strips things away from us. I, I would tell you, is there a cost? Yes. But God has called us to love, to serve, to give, and it requires sacrifice. I close you with what I said on the front side. We've got to get in right condition with God. Salvation, yielding to sanctification. We've got to know the fundamentals of the faith, meaning I've got to study to show myself approved. I want to know what God says. And then we've got to be willing to partner and connect with others in the body of Christ. So whether it's serving together here at the cross, whether it's uh, getting involved in a small group, whether it's being part of our radical mentoring, whether it's uh, going locally. I mean, Ronnie and Jenna right now are down in Columbia doing uh, like some mission evaluation to see if we're going to strategically partner there. It's like we have got to be willing to step out of our comfort zone. And it takes place when we're surrendered and we're living a life of repentance, okay? So let's pray and move into a time of prayer.